Hey friends, it's me, Tangia Renee with That's What She Did Podcast, and I am excited to introduce you to our episode sponsor, History Colorado. I love a great museum, and History Colorado is one of my favorites. At eight museums across Colorado, including the Center for Colorado Women's History in Denver, the team at History Colorado wants you to discover a personal and powerful connection. Plus, their incredible Bold Women Change History series is coming back this fall of 2021. Their members support local artists and designers, after-school programs for working families, and educators working with at-risk youth. Find your history at historycolorado.org. Hey there, Inspiration Junkies. It's me, Tangia Renee. And before we get to the show, I'm going to quickly ask for a favor. If you're a fan of the show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of building resources that will help more women of color and non-binary people amplify their work and leverage the power of their stories through guest blogging and vlogging and storytelling and PR training. We need to do two simple things to make that happen continue to grow our audience so we can get more stories into more ears and fund a new website that makes blogging, vlogging, and training possible and easy. Now there's two simple ways that you can help us out right now and help make that happen. First, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually do go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile and leave us a written review, they help even more. The second thing you can do is go to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Tangia Renee and simply buy the show a coffee. It's that simple. All proceeds from Buy Me A Coffee go towards amplifying the voices of more brilliant women. Really simple, easy peasy, just the way I like it. Leave us a review and consider buying us a coffee. Thanks so much for your support and for continuing to share our work. Smooches! You're listening to That's What She Did Podcast. I'm your host, Tangier Renee. That's What She Did Podcast is a show about the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you probably don't already know. And I'm crazy excited to have you here because this is season seven, the Movement Makers Edition. All season long, we're bringing you incredible, impactful women who are finding cool and innovative ways to move their communities forward. They're creating movements one way or another. I'm so excited to have you here. If you find value here, please consider sharing this show with your friends because that helps us grow and head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Tangia Renee and you can buy the show a coffee. All proceeds for this show go to amplifying the voices of more impactful women. Thank you for joining us and let's get started. Hey there, friends and like-minded inspiration junkies. I'm thrilled to finally be able to introduce you to longtime friend and community leader, Dusty Gurule. Dusty is an accomplished leader with more than 25 years of nonprofit and public service experience. As the founding executive director of the Latina Initiative, Dusty developed the organization into a nationally recognized civic engagement and political leadership entity and helped launch the framework for the progressive infrastructure in the state of Colorado. Then, as if that weren't enough, 
After spending six years as an Obama appointee, Dusty returned to her roots in advocacy and social justice in 2017, taking on the role of executive director to the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, called COLOR, and COLOR Action Fund, was launched to push for a more accountable and equitable political infrastructure in Colorado. Today, Dusty and I discuss why all politics are local politics and how her work at Color is building the collective power of underserved Latinas in the state of Colorado. But more importantly, why building the collective power of a community is what really makes progressive change happen. We've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time and we finally had the opportunity to record it. So let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. It's season seven, the Movement Maker season of That's What She Did podcast. And I'm really excited to introduce you to Dusty Gurule, who is the executive director of a Colorado-based nonprofit called Color, Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights. Now, if you've been a listener and supporter of this show, then you're going to recognize her voice because she was part of our Movement Makers panel that we did in conjunction with History Colorado last season. We did, if you recall, we did this like big bonus episode where it was a panel of all these really wonderful dynamic women who are doing movement maker work across the state of Colorado. And we were talking about political issues impacting the um, Latino Latinx community ahead of the election. So You'll have to think back, but you can go back and just go back to season six if you haven't heard it yet and look for the bonus episode and you will find it there. It's still very relevant conversations, even though the election has happened and there's thankfully, in my opinion, been a changeover in leadership. These issues didn't go away as a result of that. They are still very much relevant. But today I wanted to focus in a little bit more on the work that specifically Dusty has been doing in Colorado for a long time in many different facets, um, but now doing it as the executive director of Color. So Welcome, Dusty. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me again. I look forward to our conversation. And it's so great to connect with you on this level, given that we've known each other for so long. I think since, what, 2005? No, longer than that. Longer than that. Since 2000. Since 2002 or 2003, because I was in college. I was, like, I think a sophomore in college, and I always credit you, I don't know if you know this, Nessie, but I always credit you for being the person that taught me how to organize. Aww. Because you were doing um, the Latina Initiative then, mm-hmm. and somehow we connected, and you recruited me as a volunteer, and you sent me, you gave me these tasks, and you were like, go find these people and go talk to these people. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this big conference and it's going to, it's going to be, and I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, I can go do that. I had no idea at the time that what you sent me to do was to organize, to, to be a community organizer. <laughs> I had no clue, but I knew I was having a great time and I was meeting a lot of people and I was doing it for something that I thought was really important And I still use those skills today. Those have been some of the most fundamental skills across my career. And no matter what I'm doing, that have served me the best. And I have you to thank for that. So thank you. Oh, 
that makes me feel good. When I'm tired, I'll remember that story. Okay. Good. <laughs> that, that it all, it all matters. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> true. So thank you for that. So yes. So we go way back, back to when I was just a young idealist in college, like believing, I don't know what crazy things I believed back then. It was before I, before the system got a hold of me and made me a little jaded. <laughs> <laughs> Still hopefully trying to use my voice on, on, on good, good causes. So we fast forward all of this time. You've been involved really doing like grassroots community level work around women's rights, specifically reproductive rights, among many other things. How would you define what you're doing now? So I think that the common thread of my work and I've thought a lot about this just because I always tell the story about the Latina initiative and that I worked for Colod before Latina initiatives. So I worked for Colod in 2003. And so growing up in the social justice movement at the Crusade for Justice, I always had this strong sense of, of like social justice and equity and racial justice. And so when I found Colod, for me, it was like the synergy of that, but also like bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. And this ability for women who, in my experience, didn't always get the credit for the leadership that they were bringing to the family, to an organization, whatever work they were doing. Not only that, that well, and granted, look how far back you have to look before women were able to get a credit card in their own name. So mm-hmm. just the misogyny of our system and the way we've been socialized. So for me, Colode was like, this is amazing because this brings all of my passions um, together. And so I worked for Colo 2003, 2004. And I think that's really, when I went to work at Latina Initiative, that's really when another level of synergy happened where the power of political, civic engagement, and just the capacity of our community knowing and having more information about what's happening in their lives, right? Other people make decisions for us all the time. And so until we can be informed and comfortable and aware, right? And connected so that we can then weigh in on those decisions and or get to the point where we're the decision makers. And so that really has been a theme for me. So I really, you know, the power and impact of policy, the power and impact of who gets elected really came to fruition for me at Latina Initiative. And that, again, that power of partnership and collaboration, because no one organization can do community building alone. Mm-hmm. Again, because our community doesn't necessarily just live in one issue. And capacity is hard to come by. I mean, it's a lot of work to engage our community who have been left out for so many years, for generations, right? Like this system wasn't created for brown people, black people, other people of color, poor people, women, young people to have a say and have that level of parity in decision-making it. That's, and so we have a lot to build and overcome. And so I think that, and when I think about my work after Latina Initiative, when I went to work for the Obama administration as a regional rep for the Secretary of Labor, 
that added another layer of understanding for me and just how the this pie that we all live in, that there's so many pieces of it, but that layer of the importance of public elected people who are appointed, just the infrastructure that we have as a, as a government, right? The importance that, that, that the government plays in our lives and how that's another, again, system that wasn't necessarily created for us, but it's also so important and critical that we, the global, the uh, general community, our friends, families, cousins, that they have a sense and know what's available to them, right? Because that's the way our country was founded, right? On this system of like government. I mean, the not that at the time that when they were creating it, again, they didn't have us in mind or our brothers or dads or uncles, but I think the promise of that, I think is what we need to continue to build. And if we get to the point where that doesn't even work, like we need to have solutions, right? And so a lot of the work that I've been focusing on since I've been back at Color, because I came back in 20, the end of 2017. And it's crazy to see like, sort of like full circle. And I think the work that we've done over the last 23 years, so our C3 side is 23 years old, has really helped to fill a lot of those gaps. I mean, we've pushed um, the envelope. We're working to change the narrative. We're working to destigmatize not only abortion, but any care, any issues that like our community have, right? Immigrants are stigmatized. Um, People who don't fit in this perceived norm of what society says we're supposed to look like or be like. And so... I'm really proud of that work and my predecessors. I'm the fifth ED now at Color. When I worked for the organization the first time I was a program manager, we didn't have an ED at the time. So I'm the fifth ED and the fact, you know, I'm so proud of the work that my predecessors have done to continue, continue that work, not just in the reproductive space, reproductive health space, which is really important because I think Oftentimes people think reproductive health care is sort of the side issue because it's, you know, mostly attributed to women's issues. So that it, it's normally not looked at as part of the overall health care framework, which because of color, it is because it is it's healthcare. <laughs> you can't separate right. out what someone needs to do for their autonomy, for their body, because right. you don't approve of it or because you don't think it's OK. So it's like all of this work has been building and all of the connecting points and the needs just like the more work that we do, the more work that I do, the more that I realize we, there's so much more to do. And for me right now, that is creating more capacity of our community and more sort of political to say, am I going to make up a word now? Getting more people to understand politics and politicizing people so that they have a better sense of, okay, this is my state level elected. This is what they do. This is my congressional representative. So are you two U.S. senators? And pretty soon after the census data is released, we're going to have a new congressional district. And oftentimes those decisions that are being made in Washington, D.C. by our state elected representatives Well, they're elected at the state, but they serve in Congress. Most people here don't really know what's happening. It's so hard to be able to 
maintain and keep track of what our state senators and state representatives are doing here at the Capitol on Colfax. Then we have this whole other layer, right, of what's happening at the national level. And we've, we see how critical and important that is when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to all of the rights, all the things that we care about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, for me, my, this, my next focus or my next thing is how do we take all of this that we've been doing for the last 23 years, the amazing work that we did last year to defeat the, the anti-abortion ballot initiative and to change leadership in the White House. Mm-hmm. We got a new senator, U.S. senator. We replaced a horrible, horrible senator. But oh, yeah. that's not like, that's not enough, right? We ne- Now we need to hold them accountable. And what does that look like? How do we hold people accountable? And that takes a whole other layer of energy and capacity and understanding of what you're holding them accountable for. So it's a lot. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel super exhausted, but I also know how important it is Mm -hmm. because a lot of the issues that impact our friends, families, communities are decided by the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress. Right. Like immigration reform, like a lot of things. I think the idea that all politics are actually local is really important that the things that you care about that are impacting your everyday life that are impacting the decisions that you make that are personal to you mm-hmm. really are getting decided much higher up the stream than any of us think about and i was this makes me think of a about a, a conversation a brief conversation i had over facebook just a few days ago so Georgia has passed their horrific voting legislation that is suppressing the vote. And it was actually one of my sisters who was posted something about it and was like, I don't understand why can't the president just like overturn this? That that wasn't exactly how she said it, but that was Mm -hmm. the the question essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, here we go, (laughs) right? So I'm like trying to explain over Facebook, which is not a great forum to do that. (laughs) But there there were getting a lot of comments. And so, and she's my youngest sister. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people her age, her friends were like asking the same question in the comments. And me Mm -hmm. being the person with the political science degree and former community organizer, like I can answer these questions, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to answer the questions. And- it always is so striking to me what a the huge gap of understanding that we have from just the everyday average person and how our country is governed mm-hmm. and how the decisions are made that impact our individual lives. And the answer to her question is like, the president can't. The president doesn't have the power to just go to any state and be like, no, Georgia, you can't do that anymore. I'm changing everything. So I have to go into this whole thing of like separated separation of powers. What does the executive do? What do the states do? Mm-hmm. And why it's so important to vote. Because that person who, who put that law together, who wrote that law, is somebody that's their representative. That's their Senator. They can walk into their office. They can email them. They can call them on the phone and say, what are you doing? Don't do that. Or Mm -hmm. they can say they support that. Mm 
right? Mm-hmm. It's not detached. It's not so far detached that the president needs to do something about it. It's not even in the president's powers to do something really. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some, some things, but not a lot <laughs> that a president can do in that situation. And uh, it's so striking to me, to your point, that we have to, uh, we actually have to politicize people. Mm-hmm. So that they understand. And it's not their fault that they don't understand. Uh-uh. It's really not. It's it's a complete lack of responsibility, I think, in our education system for really teaching people what needs to be taught. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, going back to all of, none of these things are happening on accident. I mean, again, that's not what the, the system was not created for us to participate. It was created to keep certain people in power. So, and there are so many. Now I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there are so many things happening behind the scenes. If you look at funding for public education, if you look at like the ability for civics to be taught in schools, right? Because the three branches of government that happen both at the local, state, federal, and how each of the three of them are very different, but they connect and interact and they all build on each other. But That's not something that we, you know, that we talk about, that we have a good understanding of. And again, it's not on purpose. You do a little bit of digging and you figure out, okay, who is behind? Because there's always always someone behind an effort, right? To, because voter turnout was amazing in 2020, we shifted power. We shifted power in Georgia, which was amazing. And you see local, you know, politics are local, everyone in Georgia who voted for the two new senators, how that changed the power structure and dynamics in the U.S. Senate to get us, you know, so it's like it all builds and it's all connected. And oftentimes those one branch that we as like progressives and people who do this work, and again, it's because capacity, capacity issues, like we just don't have enough time or energy or resources yet to be able to weigh in on this issue. But the legislative branch, I mean, how many times do we vote on judges that we have no idea who they are, where they're coming from, or what their values are, right? And then oftentimes, everyone starts somewhere, then they start moving up, they move up, they're on the federal bench. Who knows? One of these days, they may be a Supreme Court justice. And the power that even the the federal delegation judges have over a lot of the things that we that are important to us. I mean, look how many people in our community are pushed into the criminal justice criminal injustice system on a daily basis. And again, that happens at every level. And until we can have a better understanding of how the system works, so that we can say, "Hey, wait a second." That's not okay. This isn't working. This isn't because unless you say something or weigh in or have your voice, you know, as part of the conversation, and sometimes we have to force our way in, then nothing's going to change because whoever is in charge and who had been making the decisions beforehand, they're, they're comfortable. And so they don't want anyone else to weigh in, right? They don't want because here I go with my conspiracy theories. I don't know why I woke up on Sunday feeling this way. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, often, and you can see it. If you see the, the wage gap 
and just how crazy and how much larger that has gotten under our previous president, you know, presidency of how many, how many people are making money off of COVID now? Like it's crazy. Like people are dying and people still don't have resources in the healthcare and the information they need to be able to, you know, make the decisions that they need to make for themselves. And yet it's like a a money-making thing of trying to get people vaccinated. So I don't know, it's just crazy. And it's just, but I think what gives me hope is that I think there are a lot more people who believe in equity and fairness and racial justice than not, right? I think those people are the outliers and they had more energy under the that person who was in the White House before because he, you know, was able to fuel their hate and white supremacy and racism, mm-hmm. which was isn't new to this country. Again, that's what the country was founded on. Those people who came here weren't the nicest people when they first landed on this continent. So it's just a lot. But I think what gives me hope is that, again, there I think there's a lot more people who believe in racial equity and they want to take care of their families and they want people to, you know, ha- ha- live in a fair, equitable city, state, country. And that young people are wanting to be more engaged and like care deeply about their communities and are voting, you know, at higher levels. Something interesting that I heard, or was it yesterday or Friday? So this woman, her name's Loretta Ross. She is one of the founders of reproductive justice movement. She used to run Sister Song for many, many years. Now she is a teacher and a scholar and she's amazing. So she's hosting these sessions where she is talking, inviting, you know, folks throughout the country to talk about like calling in and calling out is what she calls it, but really like an opportunity to talk about and connect issues and provide context. Cause I feel like oftentimes we, again, as a movement can spend more time on context. Cause if you don't understand how we got to this point, how will you know how to continue growing and moving forward, right? So Mm -hmm. um, anyway, she shared this fact about how deep white supremacy is runs in our country and that every presidential, hopefully I get this right, every presidential election, how did she say this? Okay, so the Biden election was the first time that a majority of a white voter block, in this case, young white voters, This was the first time that a a block of white voters voted for the progressive candidate. So under Obama, it was he won because smaller proportion of white voters, not a majority of them. Right. But a smaller proportion. And then all of us voted for him. But Biden was the first time that it was, you know, a majority of that white voting block that voted for him, which to me, I was like, oh, my goodness. I guess I had that had never occurred to me that that's how deep, you know, white supremacy runs in our country, that 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 was the first time that's ever happened. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's also important and shows that young people are maybe tired of the inequities and maybe want to have more of a voice and more engaged, which 
is great to continue moving us forward, right? I mean, I feel like we as a country take a step forward and then two steps back, but at least we don't forget how to take steps forward. I think that's what keeps me going in the work. Mm-hmm. It helps me, you know, wake up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, th- to think of it that way, right? That that we are moving, it's progress. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it shifts, it looks different. But we are moving and growing. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly hope it's true that more people than not are desiring and willing to work for a equitable world. I certainly hope that that's true because that doesn't if you, like if you spend any amount of time on social media, it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, well, again, I don't. I don't think that's an accident. Here I go again. I'm not on Facebook anymore. I just couldn't. I felt like it was sort of taking my energy away from how I want to be thinking and for, you know, mm-hmm. forward thinking and what's possible and what are the steps to get there and how do we bring other people along to like make our state better? I mean, that's my focus right now. Um, sure. Because your energy takes you where the direction that you want to go. Yes. Agreed. Completely. I'd like to introduce you to one of my favorite places on the internet, the Free Body Society, an online apparel store that creates empowering t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, and accessories to inspire women to be bold and embrace their bodies, no matter their size. The Free Body Society is on a mission to ensure all women feel powerful and free in their bodies. From the perfect breathable tank for your next workout to a cozy crop top hoodie for those days when you want to make a statement or simply lounge it out, the Free Body Society has you covered. Personally, the super soft hoodies are my favorite. In fact, I'm wearing my curvy AF hoodie right now. I've never felt anything softer on my skin. Anytime I wear it out, I get a ton of compliments. And I love wearing the hoodies to the gym or out running errands because they just make a statement and draw people in. Any of the tops can be dressed up with a cute full skirt, jeans, and a blazer, or just throw on a tank and be workout ready. The options are endless. For being a listener of the That's What She Did podcast, you get 15% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on any order over $35. All you have to do is use code SHEDID at checkout, and the discounts are all yours. That's code SHEDID at checkout. Don't forget to head over to freebodysociety.com today and hit that discount code. Smooches! Now, with your work with Colored, what is it for you specifically around reproductive rights that's so important, particularly in the Latino community? Well, I think for me, and the way we define reproductive health rights and justice, mm-hmm. there's slightly a little bit uh, different nuances. So reproductive health is you know, the care that you get. So like your doctor or Planned Parenthood clinics or any sort of like clinics, that's like health. And they have, we have a strong allyship with organizations like that. 
their mission is to provide care, right? Which is critical and important. Reproductive rights is the legality of that care in all things involving reproductive health, which is again, critical and important because our legislative branch oftentimes, and even in our state statute and constitution, there's specific legal things that determine that autonomy, right? And the access and what's available. Reproductive justice, again, which was founded by black women and is continue, continues to be led by women of color, is that intersection of all of the things that we bring, right? So our civil rights, racial justice, wanting to engage and impact economic justice issues. And because we don't live, for us, it's about everything, right? And so reproductive justice is really all of those things, like the whole person, the whole community, like everything that you bring, right? Like you you want to have a job where you're making an equitable salary and you're not, of course, you know, Latinas, the pay gap, Latinas are on the lowest pay rate pay range when it comes to the pay gap. And there are so many other things, you know, look at our communities, look at our agricultural workers, the way they're, they're treated. And so that's why for me and for Color, we work in the intersections because even if even if something is legally available, like abortion care, right? It doesn't mean that you are able to access it. Like maybe you don't have a clinic near you. Maybe there it's a transportation issue. Maybe you can't take time off. So it's an economic issue. Maybe, you know, all of these other things that intersect with that. Maybe you're a young person who doesn't have the type of family that I think people think all young people have when they design these policies that require young people to get parental consent. In a perfect world, yes, but it, this isn't leave it to beaver. Like some families aren't, some biological families aren't the most safe or healthy, right, for a young person. That's why a lot of people have chosen families. Anyway, so like our work really focuses on, and it's, it's on the intersectionalities. And sometimes it's like, oh, daunting because we could be everywhere, right? But we have, we do focus in on like economic justice, immigrant justice, and like reproductive just and reproductive rights. And that's sort of where we live. But oftentimes we engage on GLBTQ issues, right? We that's a really and the impact of hate on like transgender people, oftentimes who are transgender people of color, who are oftentimes the victims of crime and horrible, horrible things. And so like our work is really to say that those kind of things are not okay. And that as elected officials, we're working to continue to educate them and inform them so that they have a good understanding or better understanding of the, the realities that our communities live in. Because at the end of every policy decision is a person or a family, right? And oftentimes I think people get stuck in, oh, how much is this gonna cost people state level elected? It's probably congressional too. Um, how much is this going to cost? And well, is this in my district with the forgetting that this is going to impact someone at the end of the day, right? Someone in their family, either in a good way or a bad way. And so how do we want to, how do we want to 
approach this, right? I mean, and I know like housing is such a critical issue because if you don't have shelter, right, how can you be able to make decisions and live a healthy life? I think similarly, if a person can't have, can't be in a safe space, have the information and resources and autonomy and power to be able to decide what happens to their own body, how, if you don't have that fundamental reality, how will you be able to, oh yeah, I'm going to go to college. Oh yeah, I'm going to major in this. Oh yeah, I'm going to do, you know what I mean? It starts there. And so that's why it's so important and critical. And again, connecting it to the politics of it all, who we elect at any level, even school board, right? And even city council and mayor and state representatives and governors. And because those people we elect have decision-making power. They also oftentimes, depending on the office, have appointing power or hiring power. And so the people that are making those decisions are all influenced by that person who was elected. Right. And so we need to be, one, we need to remind them that they're not doing this. They're public servants, right? We're the public. They're not doing this in a vacuum. And so how can we work in partnership to continue to bring everyone and everyone's issues? Because at the end of the day, we just want people to live like healthy, safe lives, right? However they see fit. Like we're not going to determine that. If someone wants to have a child and ha- wants to have five, six, seven, I mean, my grandma had 15. If that is your what you, your decision and you feel safe and have what you need, right? Then go forth and do what you need to do right. um, to be happy for yourself and safe and thrive. I mean, I feel like it's so hard for people to um, embody that word thrive because of so many barriers and restrictions and violence oftentimes on like communities of color and young people. So that's why, that's why I think this work is so critical and important. And again, continuing to use this intersectional framework mm-hmm. when decision makers are making decisions like you can't make decisions if you truly care about community and are a true public servant and want to do the best right do your best because at the end of the day everybody can only do their best then do that with the best intentions bring the right people have the right conversations hear from the right people, right? Who, and the people oftentimes who are impacted the most are rarely part of the conversation. Right. So here's a question. So historically, at least the, the Latino community has been pretty conservative on not just issues that it votes on, but I think also on its view of reproductive rights as we would define them. And so I'd love to know more about how, like, do you feel that 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 it's changing the ideas around women and what is, in fact, their right, that body autonomy can and should does exist? Do you feel like attitudes at at the community-wide level are changing 
around that just because again, historically, when we're talking about the Latino community specifically, it tends to vote more conservatively on these kinds of issues. It tends to have more conservative views. I feel like that that's changed a bit with younger generations, but I don't know. I mean, you guys are on the ground doing the engagement piece, right? And trying to have these conversations at a grassroots level. What are you seeing? What is is the community saying about this at this point? Well, I think there's lots of reasons for that. And again, you know this as well as um, I do, that our community is not a monolith. And so um, I think people tend to say, oh, Latino Catholics tend to be this. Well, oftentimes Latinas, which was the whole point of Latina initiative, Mm -hmm. is that, and this is true. I mean, you can look at the 2020 election results. And there's been tons of research by national folks that Latinas, we tend to be more progressive than, mm-hmm. you know, the progressive one in the family. Right. And I mean, and I even think back to like my grandmas, both my grandmas and my aunts, I think at the very core, they strongly believe in that in bodily autonomy. Right. And had they have if they would have had the all the opportunities that we have now the the ability to be able to be more vocal and again generational trauma runs deep you know misogyny runs deep misogyny and i guess in our culture it's called machismo <laughs> it runs deep and so i don't think that that necessarily is a good indicator of really where people are and i think the more that we do work, and even with a lot of Latina Catholics, like they, you know, it gets, it comes down to, well, I wouldn't do that, but I don't want, I don't think it's okay for anyone to limit anyone else to do that, right? I mean, fundamentally, right. that's what it comes down to. And again, I think those folks in our community who were involved in the civil rights movement and different social justice movements believe that strongly too. And that synergy of, you know, if I'm going to be out here protesting, then I I can't separate my, my views on against police brutality and my ability to do what I need to do for my own autonomy, you know? Right. And so I feel like sometimes people say that and throw that at that you know our community tends to be more and they even said that during the no on 115 campaign they the other side that latinos don't support this and and that they're more conservative on social issues i disagree and in fact there was an article that came out the new chair i guess of the i don't know if he's a chair he's some latino republican in the state of colorado who tried to say that because there were Latinos, small number, still don't understand it, who voted for Trump. And I think they're really trying to monopolize on that, oh, it must be be because they're socially conservative, right? And I still don't fully understand it. But again, there's lots of layers of what's been happening in the way people the way people react to different things. So like that strong anti-immigrant sentiment. I mean, we know brown people who are like, remember back in the day when they'd be like, they used to use the term wetback. 
Mm-hmm. It'd be like, that's your, that could be your uncle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, it's that ingrained self-hate and like racism that really comes down to fear in that crabs in the bucket mentality. Like I'm struggling. Maybe if I come out and say, I'm like, like with these people, then I won't get like targeted. Right. I mean, look at the, yeah. Anyway, I could go on and on. There's a guy I went to high school with who he and his brother were like Trump supporters. (laughs) I'm like, you grew up in the North side. Your family (laughs) is Mexican. You, do you think that they are going to see you any differently than the people that they're separating and putting in cages? That's what I wanted to do to them, but I'm like, I just can't. But I think it's, people are very, humans are very layered mm-hmm. and complicated, you know? And so the way people choose to try to side with the conqueror, it's self-preservation, in my opinion. My view. Yes. Yeah, yeah, self-preservation. Also, um, I don't, I think that's their intent, but without thinking, they're yeah. not going to be self, they're not preserving anything except what they want. Anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah, so I hear you. Latinas do in the family structure tend to be the more progressive. And if I think about just my own, you know, anecdotally, my own friends, the same generation as me, or maybe even a little younger, it wouldn't matter. They might go to mass. They might be Catholic. They might go to mass or they might be very, you know, much a part of a religious structure, but they're still very much like you do you, you do what is right for you. And and that may not be the choice I would make for me, but I believe that you have the ability and right to decide for yourself without having my or anybody else's input. Yeah. So I hear that. One thing though, it, it makes me wonder is, have you seen that the conversations are becoming more open at the community or family level? Because I think this was also part of the issue looking back around reproductive rights is that these were conversations that weren't being had. Like it was too taboo. Like you didn't talk about it. If you were going to go and do that, then you didn't talk. You just don't talk about Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. It's this is, and it wasn't because you wanted to be private about it. It was because you knew that it wasn't going to be considered an acceptable conversation. And part of people becoming more political in their lives, part of them really engaging in the issues and understanding what they mean on a personal level is you have to have these conversations. You have to, you, Mm -hmm. you don't learn about these things in a vacuum. Like, you know, there's no thumb drive that you can slide into your ear and upload all the information (laughs) into your head. And so it's really important to be able to have conversations with real people who have been impacted by this issue of reproductive rights so that they can tell their stories. And I'm wondering, are you seeing those conversations happening now? I mean, I would say yes. Again, this is our Colod's 23rd year. And while our some projects have come and gone and sort of the approach has been, you know, a little bit different depending on the year. But I think what has continued is that like understanding and commitment to working with young people, right, as mm-hmm. an entry point to the family. 
And so, and understanding that having those conversations with parents is also important. So we have this program called Two Gen, where we have young people who more than likely are related to the adults in a, and have a session talking about, like com- we have a curriculum about comprehensive um, sex ed and like the conversations with parents is like, how do you support your young people? And oftentimes there's issues that come up with the, with the, you know, the women more than likely it's senoras. All our organizer, we're having to do them virtually now, but she said there was a, someone's partner who joined, which is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. That just shows that he's interested in like supporting and learning. And these are all Spanish speakers. And so we have a radio show. This is our fourth year. I think in April, this month, we're in April already. This month is our fourth year. And it's been amazing to see the shift in listeners. So it's Spanish speaking radio show. Granted, she still gets some callers and oftentimes it's the same two people who are like, yeah, naysayers and they're men. <laughs> um, but there's a, there was a woman who shared her abortion story on the radio, which is in, you know, in the Spanish speaking community, that That's was a, a huge, yeah. yeah. And so I think it's, it's having those conversations, bringing community together, teaching like young people with our lips program. Mm-hmm. And we have a new program called Youth of Color, which teaches young people and they lead in different areas, but they learn, okay, this is how policy happens. This is the power mapping of electeds, or this is how you talk about reproductive justice. And this is how you help storytell and change the narrative and bring in other young people or the other fellow focuses on organizing. This is how you engage young people in elections. And so I think for us, it has been young people has always been like a common thread, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to talk to family and community and in a safe space. And oftentimes it's with uh, many community, but you know, Spanish speaking immigrants, it's a small circle. And if they trust you, then more than likely they'll bring other people. And so you earn that trust, right? And we're a trusted messenger and the message is a little more resonates more because they trust who we are, right? Because mm-hmm. we're consistent and we're we engage them year round. We're not just here a few months before an election to say, oh look, you should vote for this person. And so I think it is changing. And I think unfortunately due to the systematic violence against our communities, but I think the focus and attention against like racism and like the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement, the fact that that movement is in response to that, but the fact that it has like grown and is starting to like they're their visioning and their strategy has been brilliant Mm -hmm. because they are not only is it people are like aware of it. Right. But I think people are understanding like where and how they engage when it comes to the decision makers, when it comes to the policy making, I mean, and there, you know, it's not like, okay, we're just going to have this hashtag and that's it. Like understanding that it, you have to get in at all of those different levels and change the decision makers and have mm-hmm. the conversations sometimes that are scary and hard. And it's not like these conversations are new. I think they've been happening for centuries, but something about the 
the way the clouds, a lot of the clouds, planets aligned has made this time ripe for us as people of color, communities of color, to, for me, to be, become more sophisticated in our approach, right? Mm-hmm. And really be clear and in our vision and our strategy and what is it going to take for us to get there, right? Not just addressing what's right in front of us because Mm -hmm. then that comes, there's always something new. Unless we have a clear vision of this. And for me right now, that's 2024. What are we, how do I want us to be? Colored, Colored Action Fund, Latinos in Colorado. How do I want us to be positioned? What's our, the awareness level like in 2024? Because they're going to, the other side's going to come back hard. I mean, you're seeing it already. You right. mentioned the Georgia voting law. I mean, they're, that's their way of trying to stop the collective power and energy of people who just want equity <laughs> and fairness. So for you right now with, at, at Colod, what's you said you're focused on 2024. So what's end game for 2024? What are you trying to achieve? So with our action fund, a couple of things. I mean, 2024 is the next presidential election, right? right? And so I envision through the work of us and other organizations between now and then, again, with an intentional intentionality around it, that we have throughout the state in those places outside of Denver metro area where there are a lot of Latinos, a lot of Mexican immigrants who live, who currently probably don't have the best state representative or state senator because it's like in Rifle, Colorado or Grand Junction, where Mm -hmm. there tends to be more conservative electeds, that there are more people who are engaged, who are aware, who maybe are going to be running for office themselves, who can engage and connect and communicate. And similar to the model that Obama used when he ran for office, remember, it was very, the first time, very neighborhood centered, Mm -hmm. very like you get your people, you have your house party, you talk about the issues so that you're all aware and connected. Like I want us to build to that and we're going to have a new congressional seat soon where that will be. That's up to the redistricting commissions, mm-hmm. but, and maybe the person. So again, building that pipeline of people who, and just because you're Brown doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best elected, like building right. that pipeline of people who have a strong values rooted in like racial equity and justice and all the justices who either run for office, who either get their people so that we, so that our state can be truly reflective of what I believe the values of the most of the people that live here, right? And ensuring that people aren't harmed and that we win the election again, and that we continue to build those decision makers and elected officials here locally who understand what what our communities are going through, right? Mm-hmm. So that we don't have to fight these ridiculous ballot measures because trying to limit our autonomy. Every single year. <laughs> I know. At, at least in Colorado, every single year, there's 
at least one ballot measure that is about removing reproductive rights from women every, and usually there's multiple, like just worded in different ways. So I would like to see an end of that. (laughs) Yeah. And that happens too at the legislature. Fortunately, again, elections matter. Fortunately, and again, just because they're Democrats doesn't necessarily mean they have that fundamental racial equity and justice framework, right? Which Mm -hmm. is part of the other work that we're doing to work with elected officials and continue to engage them to broaden their their perspective and understanding. Early on, you had talked about the need to do the work to politicize the community, to give them a, a chance to understand what power building is and why it matters. Because that's really what you're doing with, mm-hmm. with particularly your action fund. It's focused on power building for mm-hmm. the people who whose voices are usually not at the table, who are least represented yes. in the decision-making process. But also the other side of that is power is helping the community, the individuals understand why it matters and how yes. it impacts their lives. And one of the things that stands out to me if we're talking about reproductive rights is you had made the point that reproductive rights for women are seen as a separate issue. It's not part of like healthcare even mm-hmm. though this is a healthcare mm-hmm. issue, but it's seen as separately. And when we tag things as women's, quote unquote, women's issues, men are left out or disengaged from the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to know, like, what do you all see as a solution to that? Because, okay, it's a women's issue. More broadly, it's a health issue but men have to be part of this conversation. And it sort Mm -hmm. of feels like when we're talking about reproductive rights, that men don't feel like they need to be a part of it unless it's to tell women what they think. Like my opinion is that you should Mm -hmm. be doing this. And I'm like, nobody wants to hear, nobody asked you your opinion. We don't actually care (laughs) what you want us to do with our bodies. What we want you to do is sit down and hear, hear us. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how to make that conversation actually happen so that it's not a just like, I believe this is how your body should be legislated mm-hmm. and changing it to like, yes, I may be male, but this conversation is an important conversation to have. And like, let's just have, let me understand what it's like for you. Let me just mm-hmm. hear you out. And I don't ever see that happening. It's so rare. So a couple of things. I would say that I think the beauty of the reproductive justice framework, again, it's you know really rooted in racial justice, um, social justice. And so in that space, like nationally with our national partners, there are men that are part of the conversation. And so I feel like that, I, I agree that I feel like we, the collective we, because women's issues were for generations, were never given the, were never honored and or given the space, right? I mean, women, again, couldn't even have a credit card in their own name. I can't remember what year that, in the 60s, I think, something ridiculous, or 50s, probably the 50s. (laughs) 
Uh, I actually think it was later. So, I think it might have been the seventies. I would have yeah, to, you know what? But I think it was like late seventies right. that women could finally get a credit card in their own names. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. And so I think the fact that women never had the space, the platform. I think the focus was for many years was we need to have our own platform to have these conversations because. By like we're raised differently, we're socialized differently. And so there's a sort of a different approach. I think now where we are and the work that we've done, the work that I've done both at Color and Latina Initiative has really centered on like family, right? Family and community and you, family, community. And so that allows for more than just this woman, her choice sort of thing, because it's not that simple, right? Because we're all, we all come to our lives and ourselves with who we bring. I think there's a lot of opportunity, especially with young people. In fact, our Youth of Color fellow, her cohort last year was who identified as young men and young women in her cohort, understanding that young people want to engage in in this work and learn and be connected, right, to efforts. I think sometimes, again, like perspective matters and all that to say that I feel like there's a lot more work we can do in that regard. And we, Mm -hmm. both the global we, but also like Colod Action Fund, I think is giving us an opportunity to not just focus on people who identify as a woman, right? Because that's not always someone who is born biologically, right? Mm -hmm. And being sensitive and understanding that we can't, that we have to be open and support people where they are. But I think there's an opportunity for us to have more conversations and bring in the entire family unit and young, like young, young people, both Young men and young women and young men oftentimes are targeted and over-disciplined in schools and like tracked into the criminal justice system. And so I think it's needed. It's just so hard sometimes. I, I wish there was other organizations thinking like this, that we can come together and do this, you know, type of work. But there's so much work to do that oftentimes it's hard. I think this that's why back in 91... You remember the Laras, well, it's still a thing, the Laras Leadership Program. But back when we started it in 91, it was the Larasa Male Youth Leadership Conference for young men, young boys in middle and high school, because there were no programs for them. I think there were maybe one or two. This is DPS specifically and Adams. Anyway, that was the whole point of creating that program to, to be able to work with young boys um, of color, right? And then a lot of the young women started coming. And so that's why we just, you know, called it the Larasa Youth Leadership Conference. Anyway, all that to say that I think it's important. Role models are important. And so having the right people to be able to do this kind of work is important too. And I know, you know, the work that Cisco used to do. I think he moved, but I think his group is still doing work with young, young males. I don't know how much they work to politicize, but I think that's an opportunity for us and other POC C4 organizations, which we are partnered with. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be great. It's just, it's not just a women's issue. Right. Even though we're, it's classified that way. Right. But it, it, it's, I think you're right. I think it's a community issue. I think it's a family mm-hmm. issue. And all of that is to say, I don't think I need some man showing up to tell me what he thinks about what I should do with my body. That's not the point. I think the point is that women have to make tough decisions a lot of times because of the legislation that's placed around them about how to be in their own bodies. And that impacts all of us. And so we need to have the conversation openly so that you, as if I'm talking to a man, understands why it's difficult for me to make this decision and what is the context that is creating that difficulty and how that impacts me and how when I am impacted in a negative way, how that impacts my family and the community beyond that. And just like humanize it for once. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of women talking to women, which that space needs to exist. But I think unintentionally we've had this result of men feeling like they can't be part of this conversation that it's not for them to have. And I, I think that it is, I think that they should be part of the conversation, but in a way that isn't taking over the conversation in a way that isn't telling, but listening. And I think men are willing to do that. We have to provide the opportunity. The reason why I think men are willing to do that is because 20% of the listeners, the listening audience of this show, mm-hmm are men, according to Google Analytics. (laughs) This is is what Google (laughs) tells me. So I'm pretty sure it's correct, right? And this is a show that was created really for women with women in mind. And we have conversations exclusively with women about the things that they're working on and the the impacts that they're having in the world. But 20% of the audience that shows up every single season, week after week, are men. And that tells me that they're, they at least want to know about it. There's a certain awareness <laughs> mm-hmm. that, and so I, I think that that makes me feel hopeful about the future that more men actually maybe do want to engage in these conversations. Maybe they just don't know how, maybe we don't know how to invite them to engage in that conversation in a productive way, but I believe that the desire is there. Yeah. I mean, and for me, it's really a solidarity thing, right? Like, again, being strongly rooted in social justice, racial equity, what I bring in the support that I would get from someone who identifies as a male, right? One of my homies is that you support me in this. I'm also going to support you on whatever issues are impacting you and your life and where you are in this, like that all boats rise if, if our boat rises. Right. And so within mm-hmm. this frame of social justice and human in humanity, it's not, it's, oh, this is just for me sort of thing, because we're all in solidarity. We're all, we'll, our, we'll blah, we're all supporting this framework of moving forward. And so that that's the way I see it. I mean, I have on my C4 board, I have one, two, three, three um, males, three, three people who identify as males who are, who get 
the, this like social justice, racial equity, building political power because our communities need it, right? And they all have sisters and partners or partners and understand that how important it is to live, again, a life of safety and fairness and not be targeted because they're gay or because they're an immigrant or because their sister needs the support that she needs to take care of her reproductive health, however she sees fit, right? So it, for me, it's really uh, rooted in solidarity and camaraderie and nobody lives on a deserted island by themselves. And so we really need to talk about these things as, again, uh, what we both already said, like a family, community issue because it's important for all of us. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much, Dusty, again, for spending some time with us in, in the middle of your, your busy schedule. I know the next couple of years are going to be a monster for you guys. There's so much that you're working on. So I appreciate you taking some time out to come and talk to us about what you're up to at Color, building collective power, all of the things that you're doing. Thank you so much. Of course, honey. I appreciate you and just love that we've stayed connected all these years. Me too. The work that you're doing is amazing. Thank you. I mean, it's not, it's one small, this podcast is really like one small thing that I can do to hopefully generate some important conversations and amplify women that are doing really cool things in the world that everybody should know about, that everybody can learn from, that everybody can take, take pointers from and be engaged in on some level. And that's why I do it. So I hope that it has an impact somewhere. I hope it inspires somebody to go out and do something incredible. And it's just one small thing that I do. I'm not out here organizing. I'm not (laughs) building collective power like you are. So thank you for the work that you all are doing. But you are organizing, Tangia. Don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) You're bringing people together. Okay, I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But thank you again. And folks, you know what we do. We will connect to Dusty and Color and all of the work they're doing in the show notes to make that easy for you to learn more. Consider donating if you're in a place to be able to do that. These organizations work really, really hard all year long and it's really hard to fund the work. And that's what, if you can't be engaged in another way, sometimes the best thing you can do is drop some money in the pot so that they can continue to expand the work. So please consider that. If you are not following us yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Please make sure you do that (laughs) so that you know when new episodes have been dropped and are available for you to listen. And uh, we thank you for your time. You can be spending it anywhere, but you're choosing to spend it with us and learn about these incredible women and the work that they're doing. And I appreciate you for it. So thanks again for joining us, folks. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you're listening because it does actually help us grow. And this show has grown so much just because of your recommendation. So I love you from the bottom of my heart. Until next time, we out. Bye.